Hey, Helicopter Podcast listeners, this is John Gray from the Hangar Z Podcast. I want to let you all know Vertical Fowler's Spring 2024 issue is now available. In our Spring 2024 issue, we head over to Leon County for a look at how law enforcement agencies in Northern Florida are combining forces to enhance crime fighting. We also visit Metro Aviation in Shreveport, Louisiana to learn about the work behind installing a Metro interior in an Airbus helicopter. We connect with the experts in the search and rescue sector for an update on the latest trends, training, and tools using helicopter rescue missions. And finally, we catch up with the Los Angeles Police Department's Aviation Unit for a look at its training programs. All this, plus highlights of some new products and services that made their debuts at Heli Expo 2024. To check out the latest issue of Vertical Valor, go to verticalvalor.com and scroll to the bottom of the page to find magazines. Enjoy. All right, today I'm joined by Shane Woods out of Australia. First Australian guest, which is pretty exciting. Love the Australians, great people. And just had a great time connecting with Shane. Shane has tremendous helicopter experience over... 10,000 hours, flew for the Border Patrol down in Australia, and he's done a whole bunch of other stuff. And the reason I connected with Shane was he also is with a company called Your Jet Life, and they're currently doing a lottery to support Angel Flight in Australia, and they're giving away an R44. You heard me right. They're giving away an R44. They're giving away training with the, with the package, maintenance, fuel for a year, hang rich, everything. So, like, you could have zero flight experience and win this lottery, and you'll be good to go. So, I really want to learn more about that. That's how I reached out, or why I reached out, and that's how I got connected with Shane. So, this episode talks about the lottery, and it talks about Shane's uh, helicopter experience. Enjoy. As always, a special thanks to Celicopter for producing this podcast. Specializing in helicopter evaluations, faster sales, and superb service, Celicopter is the go-to agency for clients expecting immediate results. Celicopter's team of helicopter professionals are the best in the business. Using their aviation expertise, a nationwide network, and a proprietary 76-step listing strategy, Celicopter will convert your listing from Mayday to Payday. Ready to get started? Text HELICOPTER to 1-855-CELICOPTER. That's HELICOPTER to 1-855-CELICOPTER. 735-5226 and a Celicopter pilot agent will reach out. Celicopter. List it, sell it, done. All right, what is happening? It's Halsey with the Helicopter Podcast, and I'm super excited today. I was perusing Facebook recently, like one does, kind of mindlessly going through my uh, my feed, and I saw a giveaway, and the giveaway was promoting a Robinson R44 helicopter. Uh, essentially, you can uh, sign up for this raffle and win a helicopter. So Obviously, I, with me and my background uh, in helicopters, I was like, man, I really want to talk to these people. Uh, so I reached out, and uh, within just a few days, here we are uh, talking to uh, Shane Woods today from uh, Your Jet Life. And uh, he's actually coming all the way from Australia. It's 1 p.m. Saturday for me up in Oregon, and I'm talking to Shane across the world. 
and it's 6 a.m. Sunday for him. So Shane, thank you so much for getting up early and joining the helicopter podcast today. How are you? Yeah, my pleasure. I am doing fantastic. Yeah, nice and fresh first thing in the morning. You can see the sun's just rising in the window behind I, us. I uh, saw that. I was when, I, when you and I first got on before we started recording, I was looking in the back. I'm like, it's, it looks like the sun is rising there. So, you know, I really appreciate you uh, taking time Had a on, bit a, of drama. on a Sunday. Um, yeah, I know. Like, you know how Google and, and uh, all the other video apps now, you, you know, you can like impose the background. You know, I like the, you yeah. get like the natural Australian sunrise going. So where exactly in Australia are you right now? Um, a lot of our, our listeners are obviously here in North America, but I believe we have some Australians as well. So kind of just paint the picture knowing that I literally am horrible with geography. So tell me where you're <laughs> at so I could find it on a map if I had to. All right, cool. So in Australia, I live very close to a city called Brisbane, but most people will know the area that I live as being the Gold Coast. And the Gold Coast is kind of like the sunshine surf capital of the world. It's, you know, 100 mile long white sandy beaches with, um, you know, surfers and surf competitions and, you know, people who have way too much more muscle than I have walking <laughs> up and down the beach. <laughs> and a lot more spare time than I do. So, yeah, it's it's a gorgeous place in the world. Every sunset's blue skies and, you know, there's more flying days here in this area than there is pretty much anywhere in Australia. It's it's a fantastic place. Well, that's incredible. It's, um, I, um, yeah. It sounds incredible. I, I need to visit um, and, you know, I need uh, – I probably got to work on my beach bod a little bit. Um, I don't know if I really have ah. a six-pack. I probably more have like a little bit that's of a it. pony keg. Uh, down there, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you know, I gotta, yeah. gotta work on the beach. You and me both. <laughs> <laughs> well, Shane, again, thank you so much for joining. I really, you know, um, I've had a chance to kind of review your background, and I'm really excited to talk about your overall helicopter experience today. Uh, obviously, you've been doing this for a long time, and I think you have some really fun yeah, helicopter. One of my favorite subjects. Yeah, of course, right? I mean, that's <laughs> my wife. Actually, used to. I uh, worked at Maverick Helicopters in in Las Vegas. If you're familiar. And oh, damn. one am, of the yeah. cool things about Maverick is it was all, you know, all your peers, all your pilot coworkers were helicopter pilots, obviously. And yeah. so whether you came from this walk of life or that walk of life, everyone had one thing in common and that was helicopters. And so any event yeah. in which was outside of work, whether we were grabbing beers or grabbing dinner with some of the other wives and, and the pilots and whatnot, all we ever talked about was helicopters. Like I, we would literally sit, we would work five days and then I had to sit, you know, we had kind of the, I had Mondays off or whatever. And the same guys had Monday off and we would go to the same bar every Monday, drink beer and talk about helicopters. So I think we're just hardwired to talk it's, about helicopters. It's the same here. Mate, when we go out for a weekend, it's usually where are we taking the helicopters? And, you know, I've got friends that own their own machines. And so we end up with a gaggle of helicopters going out to a pub or to a, to a, a you know, winery or something. It's, yeah, it's, it's in the blood. Yeah. Well, helicopters are incredible and, and you can do a lot of really fun things in it. I, I want to get right into it, though. This what tell me about this sure. winning a helicopter. What is the purpose of all this? And, you know, obviously I understand that it's to support a great cause and I'm, I'm really hoping to learn a little bit more about that. And then hopefully our listeners can learn how to also enroll. I'm going to certainly do it. Why not? I think it's what, 15, was it $15 to, for a raffle or am I wrong there? Correct. Yeah, no, that's correct. I mean, yeah. I might have to buy, so, you know, uh, a few. <laughs> well, 
the the whole idea behind it was to raise money for a charity uh, an aviation based charity called angel flight now angel flight is very similar to the way it is in the states they offer a um, pastoral care for patients so after a, a patient's diagnosed with uh, an illness the remote location people need to travel uh, quite a distance to actually get um, care so Angel Flight does that that um, job of picking them up with a, an aircraft and flying them back into a, a major city so that they can actually get care and then taking them back home again. So it's it's a fantastic cause. We've all done flights for them. It's um, it's based on a private network, so people doing it with private flights. There's no commercial. They don't get a lot of backing from the government because it's uh, under that private realm, and so their charity raising is is all that they get their funds from so we wanted to help them get some jets they want to buy uh, a couple of jets the um, vision jets from cirrus and use those jets to fly a greater range and take doctors out to actually do clinics at a local community rather than actually just bringing back patients one at a time so we came up with the idea of running a lottery so that we could actually raise funds for that and so we've been raising funds since um, December. We started the first lottery in the 1st of the January. And um, we just finished giving away uh, Cirrus SR22. Wow. Um, and the, the whole package um, that was done last month. So that was fantastic. So Cirrus SR22, brand new, straight off the line. It was a uh, hangridge for 12 months. It was $100,000 worth of fuel with uh, a card from World Fuel. There was um, the money towards a pilot license as well so yeah very very cool thing to do and i was actually involved with the draw and just giving it away drawing the numbers and, and making the phone call to tell somebody they've just won a, an aircraft is is fantastic yeah i and mean what i, I was just giving thinking away about that is, like what is that uh i don't know about in australia but here in the states we have like big lotteries i think last week we had a lottery that was over a billion dollars, you know, and, and you go and buy your lottery ticket, you know, you're never going to win. But there's that thought that goes through the back of your head of like, what if, like, what if I win? Mm -hmm. Obviously, the SR22 is not quite a billion dollars, but it's an amazing prize for that individual. What was their reaction? Oh, sure. I mean, I, I walk me through well, kind you of can what see that it online. Like. You can see it online, so it's it's recorded online as the you know, well as the guy's being told that we're we're giving it to him, and it was it's it's life changing for them. It's it's something that they you know it's completely out. And you're right, he bought ten tickets, and he thought I'm in there for a little bit of this, not going to happen. And he had to phone up a couple of friends and look online to make sure that it was actually him because he he thought it was a, a hoax. He thought his friends were just putting him on. Oh yeah, you won your plane, ha ha ha. But yeah, it was. <laughs> Yeah, completely amazing. So then after that, we said, well, okay, we're moving into the, the next one. And we've got a, a lottery license for about five years. So we're looking at different aviation experiences and different aircraft that we can give away that people can actually go, well, I could see myself actually flying that. I, you know, it's an aircraft that, you know, is either luxury, but I could see myself actually owning it and flying it for at least the 12 months side of period. Uh, afterwards, we can give them, um, you know, a couple of ideas on how they can manage the aircraft. But I'm not going to, you know, try to give away a 747 jet. There's no point. Or something that's, you know, beyond the capability of somebody operating. We want something that people can actually see themselves fly. So the logical conclusion from the service was, okay, what's the best-selling helicopter in the world? But R44, Robinson, you know, Raven 2 R44 with aircon. Done. That's that's the next thing we're looking at. Yeah, so, so cool. We've got the r uh, yeah, for sure. And 
you've probably got a few hours. I've got a few hours and a couple of thousand hours of flying around in them. They are fantastic platform. They really, you know, as a, as a private owner machine, you take up a little amount of space. They, they run on the smell of an oily rag. They're, they're very easy and economical to keep. And um, they're a very safe platform for anybody to operate. You can teach somebody how to fly one in 50 to 60 hours and know that they're happy for, for life flying around. Them. Yeah, I mean, Robinson uh, has done an incredible thing. Uh, obviously, there's some mm. pride for us up here knowing that, you know, in Southern California, this guy had a crazy idea to, you know, build this affordable helicopter. Um, and, mm. you know, today it's still trucking along and doing fantastic things. I actually posted a, uh, totally. some of the podcasts I do are just me talking. And one of the things I was talking about recently was Robinson helicopters. And, you know, I think mm. probably the same as in Australia, they're a little bit polarizing at times. Um, you know, some oh, people have much. some, mm. some strong opinions, but, you know, I think that all helicopters or I guess my point to that podcast was that all helicopters have limitations. And as mm -hmm. long as you stay within the parameters of the helicopter that you're flying, and you abide by the limitations as set forth by the OEM, then most of the mm -hmm. time the helicopter is going to take great care of you. And oh, what, sure. obviously with the R44 and, and R22 as well, you know, underslung, mm -hmm. low inertia, okay, I get it. But if you're competent, you do good training, and you don't allow yourselves mm -hmm. to go outside of the limitations of the aircraft, I 100% agree that uh, – R22, R44, great aircraft for private owners, uh, great training platform. I did all of my training. So, mm -hmm. you know, I love the R44. Mm -hmm. uh, I like Robinson products. The R66 is a, is a great platform as well. So uh, oh, I'm sure. definitely a Robinson mm -hmm. supporter. I'm going to be throwing in some raffle tickets for sure. <laughs> well, I did my training in a 300. It was just you know, the machine of choice of the particular school that you go to. And first time into a 22, there was all of a sudden, you know, this extra airspeed and a low, low slung frame. So this, it was, you know, the ability to fly three hours or three and a half hours on an aircraft is fantastic and cover some distance. The 44, yeah, there are limitations to it. A lot of the, the hype around the, the Robinson was, you know, maybe older stuff that's, you know, they've sorted out a lot of the kinks with regards to the operations and the blades and things. So. Nowadays, it's a good platform. Yeah. The, um, you know, for a five-seater piston-powered aircraft, there is no equivalent. There's just nothing out there. Yeah, the 40. So, and I don't think there ever will be ever again. Yeah, I mean, mm. we'll see, you know, mm. there's definitely some innovation happening um, within the, in the mm. helicopter space right now. I'm definitely interested oh, sure. to see kind of what the next 10, 15, <laughs> 20 years brings. You know, well, what that's part of part of what I get involved in too with this new new infrastructure with um, these drones and helicopter combinations now. So things are changing very rapidly. Yeah, no, things are nuts. Uh, I've talked about it before on the podcast, but I had the opportunity. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of Beta Air Technologies. They're in Burlington, Vermont. And it's a company that's making like an eVTOL, uh, you know, takes off like mm. a helicopter, lands like a helicopter, but flies, you know, forward flight. And it's in testing right mm. now. I got to fly the simulator. It's flying in real life as well. I mean, it's just crazy, crazy machine. Technology. Um, when mm. you go to their their warehouse, you know, I felt like I was entering, you know, uh, Tony Stark's laboratory, you know, from, <laughs> from Iron Man, like just crazy, crazy stuff. So, yeah. you know, definitely the, the industry is innovating. Um, but yeah, I mean, we digress a little bit. Robinson is a fantastic mm. platform. Sure. 
Um, I love the Schweitzer yeah. though too. I have I have only about 150 hours in the 300, and it's good fun. It's one of the best machines to hover. You just sort of hands off and have it trimmed out, and it just sit perfectly in a hover. Very very cool machine. Yeah, and I think. But yeah, the go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying we are getting away. The the whole package is going to be an aircraft, so there will be training involved as well. So we're giving away training. We're giving away a fuel um, card again, World Fuel, giving with uh, $100,000. And we're also giving away uh, hangarage and insurance. So it's a whole package. So that way then somebody who, um, who doesn't have any flying experience or doesn't have any flying license can actually have a whole package that'll actually get them up and flying as well and a reason to fly. Man, that's so cool. Well, I'm super excited about it. Yeah. What uh, We've talked a little bit about Angel Flight. Again, uh, just want to reiterate, you know, I have pr- not personal experience with Angel Flight, uh, but as uh, working line service growing up at all the different airports and small airports that I worked at, I got really familiar with mm-hmm. at least kind of the American, North American equivalent of angel flight, private owners, you know, coming in in their, uh, what seemed to be a lot of the time, either like a Baron or a Bonanza and taking mm-hmm. uh, patients that needed to go to a little bit of a higher level of care, not for trauma or anything like that. Usually something like mm-hmm. cancer, yeah. They have to go to, you know, the big hospital in Portland, Oregon, and they're located in central Oregon. And these private owners donate the aircraft, their time uh, to get them there. And it's just to me, it's always been one of the coolest ways uh, for for an aviator to give back. And I think Mm. it works for a couple of reasons, because I think there's a lot of good people out there that want to help. And B, as aviators, we love to have a mission. And so I feel mm-hmm. like exactly. anytime you give give a pilot a mission, they're going to be kind of more excited to go and do it. And not all missions mm-hmm. have to be paid. Obviously, this is a, a non-for-profit uh, mission, but you're, you're potentially helping save someone's life. So I think that that's why the model has worked so well. And it's really cool to hear that mm-hmm. you guys are big supporters your jet life, I'm. I have to say, I'm unfamiliar. Before I saw this uh, fundraiser on Facebook, can you just tell us a little bit more about that organization? Sure. It's as I said, it's a it's a branch off of uh, Monarch Global. Monarch Global is a, a, a global software company that does GDS um, platform for uh, pricing of aircraft, private aircraft models. So basically it can work out a price from point A to point B for an operator and then allow that operator then to use that as a core price for uh, generating a, a price for upselling a ticket or, you know, giving prices for per seat tickets. So that part um, was, we, we started um, Your Jet Life in January just for that angel flight thing. So it's, it's, it's bespoke just for that, just under the lotteries to control the lotteries. Very cool. Well, if our listeners want to partake in in this fundraiser and future fundraisers or lotteries, uh, it's probably the better way to Mm -hmm. say it. How does one do that? Uh, I'm going to do it right when we hang up. Um, And I want to put a link uh, in in the bio here for this podcast as well, where people can go and sign up, but just kind of walk us through that sign up process. Do I have to be in Australia? Can American guy like myself win it? Tell me all the, 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 the logistics around yeah, it. Yeah, sure. So 
because it's online, anyone can actually purchase tickets for it. And it's done through the website. So you go to yourjetlife.com and you can purchase tickets on online there. Um, there is two raffles that are running at the moment. The one is for the helicopter. The other one is um, for those who aren't, aren't interested in actually driving the fur. It's a private jet luxury trip. So trip in a, in a private jet with accommodation stay as well. Um, and they can all be both purchased on online through yourjetlife.com. It's available to everybody in the world because obviously it's a, an online auction. Um, delivery would be here in Australia, and then we can arrange with the, the winner, if it was in the States, in the Northern States, we can actually arrange to have the aircraft transported up there as part of that. Perfect. So it's possible. I've gives I've, access to everybody. I've sent a lot of Robinson aircraft uh, to Australia. so Down this way. Yeah, yeah usually going the other way, <laughs> put it in a 40-foot high cube. Yep. It's about a uh, three- yep, to four-week exactly. voyage. Uh Yep. Could get could be a little bit longer if it gets stuck in the port or or things like that. But you know, shipping helicopters yeah. is is actually fairly easy, especially the Robinson aircraft. Uh, you know, with mm -hmm. the forty foot high yep. cube, takeoff blades. Uh, you know, it's, effectively, it's you can just straightforward. Just goes straight into the shit into the box, and in. the way it goes. Yeah, so. absolutely. We've had a lot of questions, obviously, on Facebook with regards to oh. Can, how hard is it to ship the aircraft back? And I said, no, it's a breeze. To ship it back is very, very simple. So, yep. no, definitely. Yep, awesome. Well, it's really cool. Um, I appreciate, um, I think it's Mark from Your Jet Life kind of helped coordinate and mm. set all this up. And I really appreciate you guys coming on to talk about it. I, when I saw that, I was like, man, I have to. I have to talk to these people, you know, it's like the helicopter <laughs> yeah. podcast, well, it's, giving away a helicopter and it's for a good cause. So yeah. I think it's really awesome. Yeah, it is a fantastic cause. And um, the other thing is that we're, um, you know, going to be drawing this on December. So it's, it's going to be somebody's Christmas present. So the 20th of December, she's drawn. Uh, it's literally days before Christmas. Somebody's going to have a Christmas present of a helicopter. I would, uh, I wouldn't mind, I wouldn't mind uh, uh, R44 under the tree this year. I've been a pretty good boy. <laughs> So yeah, yeah, no coal, no, <laughs> no coal. coal for me. Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe you know. I was talking to my wife about it when we when we bought the lottery ticket the other day uh, for the Mega mm. Millions here or whatever it was. I have mm. I've never won anything as a contest like that. I've never, you know, yeah. whether it's a small school raffle or whatever it is. Like I, you know, I don't know if I'm just like. It's whatever. I just say. Well, I mean, it's it's no different than me. I have never won of those big ones, but the the numbers of tickets that we have in the in the lottery is three hundred thousand tickets, whereas the billion dollar American one, I think that's like you know, there's millions and millions and millions oh, and yeah. millions of tickets. Yeah, and so it's the the chances of winning uh, the helicopter are incredibly good. Yeah, no, and, that's incredible. I mean, yeah, yeah as a ratio, it's like. That's yeah, eight times better than our normal weekend lottery, and that's you know it seems big enough on the numbers. So it's it's an eight times better chance than that. Yeah, it's super cool. So, well, I'm I'm gonna follow. Yeah. I'm gonna obviously buy tickets. I'll continue to follow up with you guys. Uh, definitely want to once the once the drawing is done. You know, I really want to uh, see that reaction and and kind of <laughs> probably post that on our social media too because oh, that's just definitely. so fun. Uh, I can't even imagine mm. you know picking up the phone and being like, hey, by the way, you won. That's it. Yeah. Uh, and then listen to the screams on the other end of the phone. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> well, uh, as we transition, obviously, uh, away from the fundraiser there in the lottery, uh, with this being the helicopter mm -hmm. podcast, obviously, you're a helicopter guy. Um, 
And yeah. I had a chance to, you know, you had sent me some really detailed information on your career. And it sounds like you know, very high time, very experienced uh, helicopter pilot. Uh, I'm curious, you know, I'm very familiar with how one uh, obtains their uh, helicopter pilot's license here in the United States. But I'm always curious to kind of learn about what it's like to go through training in, a, in another country. And if you wouldn't mm. mind, I'd love to learn just a little bit more about uh, how uh, maybe some of our Australian listeners that are interested in getting their helicopter license, how they go about it and what it looks like uh, in Australia. Sure. It's, um, it's something I'm very involved in. I'm still an active instructor um, and do both single engine and multi-engine training here in a number of different platforms. Um, and also I teach in some of the schools with regards to getting helicopters or aviation in general into um, the later years of school. So the kids that are sort of 15 to 18, giving them an experience and an exposure to aviation. Um, it's probably no different than it is here anywhere else in the world. There is a, a lack of pilots, there's a lack of engineers, there's a lack of aviation professionals in general. Um, not really because of the attrition of retirement and everything else, but just because the network is growing exponentially and becoming more of a platform that's used. You know, our charter services, our, our main aircraft charter services are all growing exponentially that we aren't able to fill those gaps like we have been in the past. So the way that somebody would go about getting a license here in Australia, um, they would do it under two different routes. One of them is uh, the old traditional route where you turn up to an aero club or you turn up to a flight training school and you say, hey, I've got an interest in flying. I'd like to learn how to fly. And there's this you know, course where they run you through a private pilot's license then a commercial license. Um, the private pilot license is the same as it is in any ICAO state. So that would be 40 hours of flight training usually take someone around 60 hours to sort of get their hand on it and, and understand it. Uh, requires one theory exam that we do through the um, through our main regulator, which is called CASA. Um, and it's a pretty big exam. It's uh, 80 questions in three hours, and it's a real stumper. Uh, it, it has seven of the same subjects, you know, your, your typical seven commercial subjects. Um, and then once they've obtained their private pilot's license, they then go on to get a commercial license. Commercial license here in Australia is 105 hours restricted. So providing you do all the training in the same school, then you can do it at 105. Otherwise, it's 150 hours to go through the license. Um, and that requires seven theory subjects. So seven separate exams. Um, all under the same sort of pretenses. Yeah, <laughs> they're fairly heavy. So they, um, they, at the commercial standard, the pilots are pretty good. They've, they've got a very good in-depth knowledge of um, their skills. We have um, uh, no extras on our exams like they do in um, New Zealand or in other countries. We don't have things like sling or winch or night or IF as part of the tickets. It's all just flying helicopters as a base. Um, and that will get them to their, their commercial side of their license. The, the second avenue is to go through the university scheme. And the university scheme is a scheme where uh, they get a certification. Um, it's actually a, a study certificate, usually a Cert IV. Uh, and that includes uh, 12 to 18 months of academic study plus a pilot's license, commercial pilot's license on top of that. 
Uh, that usually includes, you know, a few other things. So it might include some basic IF, might include some basic simulator time, and usually a low-level endorsement as well. We we still do a low-level endorsement in Australia for some reason where nobody else in the world does. Um, you know, it's it's a different avenue, but that way then it takes it into the university scheme. So they spend a bit of time studying more on the practical side of things and the theory side of things on the on the table as well. So two different steps. Avenue. Yeah, it's always so fascinating to hear about how other countries are doing it. Um, mm. One one thing that I find really weird, again, I've talked about it on the podcast, but it's always kind of in the conversation of United States versus Canada and how, how we do things a little bit differently. Here in the States, you know, the traditional route, private, commercial, instrument, CFI, and then you're teaching. 200-hour mm. pilot, teaching mm -hmm. new students. You get your 1,000 hours. And then you go fly commercially. It's kind of, kind of like the way our system works. Is it is it similar in Australia, or is it you get your commercial and then you start doing commercial operations, and then you come Correct. back and start instructing when it actually probably makes yeah, when most you're sense. old and gray like me. <laughs> hey, at least you have hair. The, yeah, <laughs> the um. You can still go fairly quickly through that platform and get to the instructor stage. So the instructor requirements are 250 hours here in Australia. So there isn't really a large jump between it. But what it does do is that 100-hour break between your commercial license and your instructor's ticket usually means that you've had to have done something. Even if most schools are promoting a scenic, you know, they're just doing laps around the block or where they've been. Um, but it gives you a little bit of hands-on with flying with other people that aren't students before you actually hit the student rail. I still agree that a low time pilot who's just done a commercial license is probably in a good way to teach somebody practical th systems. So to teach somebody how to learn to fly, you've just got to learn to fly. It's like learning to to speak a language. You need to, to, to speak to somebody who's just learned that language because they understand the problems with actually getting that language. If you, you know, if you're 10 years down the trail, you've forgotten what it was like to learn. And so those small little nuances that make learning really important, like where to look with your eyes, where to, you know, to make your approaches or how to, to picture things or how it feels to be a little bit scared of with a you know, door off or something, you've forgotten those. You've just, you know, it's daytime routine. So it's it's easy enough to get a license to be an instructor. It's hard to remember how to, to teach and what was required to be teach. So I think the right person to teach is somebody who's just learned. Yeah, for sure. yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. I, I've always thought it was a little backwards. I've always, you know, used the term like the blind, leading the blind. Mm. And, you know, luckily most schools, specifically the one that I went to was a, a large, you know, helicopter flight school. So with that, there's a lot of policy, yeah. uh, lots of precautions. So it wasn't like I was getting mm -hmm. in with a student and doing, you know, touchdown autos or even doing autos. Yeah. In fact, I think yeah. I had to get 25 or 50 hours of just normal flight instruction before I could even mm. introduce autos from altitude to a student. Mm. And, you know, you kind of go at the own pace and, you know, teaching normal approaches, normal takeoffs, hovering. And, you know, for mm -hmm. me personally, as an instructor, because that was my route, you know, 200 hour guy going and teaching people how to fly. It was, it was, I was actually, I can remember like light bulbs going off saying, Oh, now I get what my instructor was telling me. I'm now just exactly. seeing it from mm -hmm. a different perspective. And so obviously mm -hmm. the system works. There actually isn't that many training accidents, incidents. Uh, you know, things, of course, mm -hmm. do happen, but relatively low. Uh, and on the same mm -hmm. 
token. I've had guys, uh, Marcus Grudke is a, a dear friend of mine. He's a German fella that learned in the States. And then he went off and flew commercial for 10 plus years, all sorts of uh, different uh, industries and experience. Mm-hmm. He came back to the flight school environment as the chief pilot for Hillsborough, where I was at. And getting to fly with him was incredible. Now, it took him some time to kind mm-hmm. of get back in the swing of kind of remembering ab initio flight training. But he, you yeah. know, once he did, being able to learn mm-hmm. and then he did things that I couldn't do as a low time pilot because he would say, hey, look, we're in the R-22. But when we take mm-hmm. off, I want to I want to take off like like we're in a turbine helicopter that's fully loaded and that red line actually means something. And, you know, sure enough, my first turbine gig in a 206 flying higher altitudes here at Mount St. Helens up in Washington, Mm -hmm. that's exactly what I was doing. I was milking that thing off the ground, uh, very similar to that, what I had to do in the exercise with him in the R-22. So I think that there's positives to both sides for sure. For sure. I mean, somebody with that much experience coming back into the, the training side of things, if they pick it up and they, they can do that ab initio training, because not all of us can go back into that training sort of role, but the the things that we can offer is obviously experience where we've had rotor drag, we've had rotor droop, we've got, you know, experiences working in conditions where, you know, most of us, like you go out on a, on a rainy, miserable day, it's just another day in the office. As, you know, as a, a new instructor, I remember the eyes like this, but you know, there's a cloud in the sky, one single cloud. In <laughs> the sky. I don't want to go flying today. Can't it's go. like, that's it. She's off. Yep. <laughs> we're doing theory today. We're not doing any practicals, but you know, that that's definitely an offering that you bring back to the table. Yeah. And we, uh, you know, it reminds me of a funny story. We, uh, I was the assistant <laughs> chief at the flight school I was at. And again, we were very strict, lots of, you know, there's, there was a lot of hurdles. We had lots of steps. And, mm. and again, I think that's appropriate in the training environment. And when you go For off sure. and you work yeah. as a commercial helicopter pilot, you're able to see that, hey, you want to be smart and safe, but there's not mm. as maybe as many hurdles. And I remember one day, it was a beautiful day up in Oregon, sun, sun was mm. shining, winds 10 knots, temperature 34 Fahrenheit. So almost freezing. You know, we do, we do things a little <laughs> weird. 32 is freezing. <laughs> um, yeah. And an instructor comes up and says, hey, I'm canceling my flight for a pattern training flight. I said, why? Well, it's almost freezing. I said, so, <laughs> you know, almost. there's, there's, there's not a cloud in the sky. There's no visible moisture, you know, get out there and fly, you know? So, you know, I think sometimes, you know, you have to, if you learn in such a tight box, you know, it does kind of get people yeah. stuck in that box. But uh, anyway, I, I just. Oh, for sure. On a side note, I had almost failed a check ride once because we were going out for a flight very South part of Australia, which I don't very often fly in. And we're sitting there going through all the books and he says, okay, so you feel this is a go, no go situation. I'm like, no, why? And he says, oh, well, if you have a look, the freezing levels at three and a half, 4,000 feet, which is just close to, to, you know, operational. And I went freezing level. Oh yeah, that's right. Cause I'm in Queensland. We don't have a freezing level that we ever consider cause it's up at like 15,000 yeah, feet. We never look at it. Freezing levels like what the hell's it? Oh yeah, that page. Yeah. It's never cold. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's funny how that works, right? It's just, uh, you know, different environments, you know, and that's, you know, the benefit of being an experienced commercial pilot because you get used to flying in all sorts of different avenues. So uh, when did you start your training? What kind of got you into it? And what has your career looked like, 
you know, since you've, since you've trained up to now being a, what, I think a 10,000 hour pilot, what you told me. Yeah, it's, it's been a, an interesting, right? I started in New Zealand and, and started flying in the, the university scheme over there. So I did all of my license through there, um, started doing just the, the typical sort of hump and dumps and, and dropping people around the, the island. We did um, a lot of surf flying so we'd take a, a helicopter and fly up to a, a height new zealand's very narrow so you can actually fly up and see what both coasts are like so it makes surfing choices a lot <laughs> easier cool. you go west coast east coast and then down on the both sides uh, a lot of fishing trips and then build up my hours to where i got a, a an instructor's endorsement and did my instructor training over there um, i then came to australia uh, which i'm originally from and um, started doing just some of the training up here in australia um, and then got a gig working with um, with uh, Australian Customs Border Patrol. So that was kind of my introduction into turbines. Over here, turbine step is, is usually pretty big. You've sort of got schools and operators that just run all piston-powered aircraft, and then you've got larger organisations that sort of run all of the, the turbine stuff. So I got a gig with um, Customs Patrol. Uh, and then started doing the um, border protection for those guys, which... You know, like anything, it's border protection over here is kind of um, your uh, military version that you have over there. But here it's done by a civilian operator and the civilian operator provides air asset services for uh, border protection between the, the two countries that we have the closest border with, which is Papua New Guinea and Indonesia. Um, so, yeah, it's, a, it's pretty interesting flying. It's, it's mainly like golf flying. So it's all over smaller islands in the middle of the water. Uh, you know, up to 120 nautical miles out over the water in a single engine aircraft uh, through monsoon weather. It's impressive stuff. So, yeah. And you go from one day when it's like perfectly blue skies to the next day when it's just clouds and storms and you're sort of following in that little clear blue sky in between two thunderstorm, you know, ranges. It's yeah, yeah, talk, very interesting. Talk about flight. building experience. Yeah, that's super cool. Uh, in fact, actually, the customs in uh, Border Patrol here. Uh, is also a job that's for uh, obtained by civilian pilots uh, here in the states as well. Oh, really? um, okay. Yeah, in fact, I got a couple buddies that uh, just moving into that. It's there's a lot of bureaucracy to get involved. Uh, I think they're mm. pretty oh, desperate yeah. Yeah. for hiring. I think uh, mm. when the last administration was in, they uh, kind of put a lot of money into the the border here in the states, and part of that was like hiring more pilots and things like that. But it's a very it's kind of that long, you know, you, you apply and a year later, you're maybe, you know, through the process. It was, I, I need to get someone on. over six months for us wow. to get ticketed as well. Yeah. And that was, we had to do courses on, you know, all of the customs and border regulations as well. Not only just the pilot stuff, but we had to be observers. We had to have, you know, the ability to identify different craft. It was, it was very, very intensive. Very intensive. Yeah. I mean, but talk about a fun, I mean, I feel like any job that's different every day, uh, has to be very exciting. And obviously, I don't know what the border relations are with Papua New Guinea and, and Indonesia. Uh, obviously, it's a little intense here in the States. And, you know, I know a lot of their job is, you know, also not just kind of patrolling and seeing if people are crossing the border, but also drug smugglers and human trafficking mm -hmm. and things like that. I mean, was that yep. some of the stuff that you guys did too, drug interdiction? and It's similar. 
we have water between us, which is a bit of a, a nice thing to, to thin people out. So there's nothing like ocean and sharks to actually thin <laughs> out the population from trying to wander to get yeah. between two places. So that made it a little bit better. But people would come down in, in small boats with single engines and, and travel the 60 miles or 60 nautical miles down from, you know, Papua New Guinea, Indonesian border into Australia. And, you know, the... The main thing that we were doing was flying backwards and forwards between that line and giving people a visual uh, cue that we are actually patrolling and, and, and identifying people moving backwards and forwards. Yeah, kind of and like so that deterrent. was the main role of the task. A deterrent, yeah. So as long as we were waving the flag and saying, hey, look, don't do it, that thinned out the amount of people that were coming through. We would also do things like, you know, acquisition. People would actually be, you know, on the boat, we'd actually get naval patrol and we'd assist naval patrol in the backup of um, apprehending people that were coming down. But yeah, there was illegal fishing. There was, you know, movements of whatever they'd be, you know, something illegal um, and people moving backwards and forwards as well. So there was all just the standard things for the borders. We had really lovely aircraft. We had a B3 Squirrel operation up there and a Bell 412, which is some pretty decent platforms. So if you want to be out doing it, in nasty weather, those are the two of the best platforms. Yeah, seriously. And it sounds like, you know, probably a great time <laughs> or a great place to build tons of experience and, and different uh, oh, different operations. For sure. I do want to backtrack real fast mm. with you starting in New Zealand. Uh, I just watched a documentary mm. on this volcano in New Zealand that had erupted a few years back. Mm. And there was a helicopter company that was doing tours. And in fact, the, the A-Star that was on the volcano that day got completely destroyed. And... Uh, they mm. actually used helicopters the, from that same company to kind of help extra, uh, extricate people, you know, back. Were you familiar with that? Mm. Yeah, the um, obviously we New Zealand and Australia are very close, so we share a lot of the information. Um, that was yeah, a terrible day. I mean, or a terrible week and and all. The the aircraft was actually, I believe, on the ground or just about to leave um, when it was the volcano actually went yep. off, and it just literally, the, the, it's still there. The aircraft's actually still there, so it's you know it can be seen on the on the ground there. That's um, crazy. Melted the blades are melted. Yeah, it's it's insane. You wouldn't you couldn't imagine how it would be like because you're doing things into a risky environment. All of a sudden, the risky environment doesn't become so risky after a year of flying in and out of it on a regular basis. And then it turns nasty and you go, oh, my goodness, it really quickly turns really nasty. So, yeah. Mother Nature's uh, a force. Uh, you know, we often, <laughs> you know, we as humans, we try to control everything. And, and Mother Nature is one thing that we mm. can't control. And, and you're right. You know, I couldn't imagine I, I flew Grand Canyon tours for a couple of years and and things don't really change in the Grand Canyon. It's obviously no. not going to explode. There, you know, you're not going to have mm. a tidal wave. You know, uh, but sometimes there's some clouds. You know, so definitely like mm. a little bit of a safer environment for sure. But yeah, just I don't know why when you said New Zealand, I kind of automatically thought about that and just kind of those crazy mm. events. Um, but New Zealand and Australia is actually I not visited either country and I really really want to. So it's kind of on my bucket list and have clients mm. both in both countries. So I'm hoping to get down there at some point. One thing that I noticed. Yeah, they are very close. Mm. Yeah, seriously. Um, one thing I noticed mm. when I worked in Las Vegas uh, is Australians love Las Vegas. My most common passenger <laughs> at Maverick Helicopters uh, was an Australian. Mm. Uh, and I think, yep. you know, it's, I think you guys usually get a little bit of a longer, you know, time off from work, you, like a month or something mm. like that. So, um, yeah, it's standard to get four weeks off. And Las Vegas is, um, I think, 
if you're growing up in say New Zealand or Australia, yeah, you know, you see a lot of movies and on TV, you see a lot of programs and, you know, the destination is Las Vegas, you know, it's, it's hangover. It's all of those movies yeah, of where yeah, you go and have a fantastic time and you don't have to tell an Aussie twice to have a good party. So they're going to go wherever it's, <laughs> wherever the party is in the central. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, um, I would say probably 80% of the passengers that I took to the Grand Canyon were from Australia and yeah, always super friendly, always down for a good mm. time. Uh, so, you yeah. know, I, I felt like I got to learn yeah. kind of more about Australians and, and the culture and, In general. you know, it's one of those things. It's kind of funny, you know, Australia, you know, we look alike, our accents are obviously a little bit different, mm -hmm. but it, it truly is just mm -hmm. culturally a lot different. And so it's always fun. And, mm -hmm. and something I enjoyed about doing tours was kind of connecting with different cultures, including Australia. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm hoping I can go down there, uh, on the coast where you're at sounds amazing. And I'm sure that the flying down there is just spectacular. Um, I do want to talk about, I, you know, I, I think it's pretty prevalent industry news. Uh, somewhat recently uh, with the the H1, was it two H130s or one, uh, was it the same aircraft? No, it was, actually, I think it was a 130 and a H125. Okay, so. Uh, no, 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 no. I've actually not. I take that back. I think it was two 130s. It was two So 130s. two 130s, tours uh, over the coast there. Obviously, I'm sure most mm. of the people in the industry have seen the video of the two helicopters colliding. Uh, unfortunately, there was yeah. loss of life from one of the helicopters, but amazingly, uh, one of the helicopters was able to limp back down to the ground and save, you know, all the lives mm. of the occupants. Were, are you familiar with that accident at all, uh, with it kind of being in your backyard? Yeah, very, very familiar. Um, it's happened not only while I was on shift flying around as well, um, but it's also involved people that I knew as well. Um, and yeah, it is local. Just to paint a picture of how flying is here in, on the Gold Coast, we have um, the theme parks, Sea Worlds, Movie Worlds, Dream Worlds. They're all sort of located here as well, which um, is kind of like our Florida site, things for you. So it's where everyone goes to go to those experiences. Um, and so the helicopter operators that are there are doing these little five-minute laps constantly <clears throat> all day long. There may be, you know, 50 or 60 flights a day, just wow. doing the little laps around the block and just doing the scenics. And um, so it becomes quite a, a core area. It's also quite a narrow city. Um, the Gold Coast is designed to go along with the beach. So there's not a lot of depth to it. It's just everything's concentrated up and down the beach line. So we have specific rules for operating up and down the beach where you sort of go northbound at 500, southbound at 1,000 feet to allow high density amount of traffic to sort of pass each other. But it's in a mandatory broadcasting zone called a CTAF. So they're all on a group frequency. Everybody's sharing information backwards and forwards on the same frequency within that same, same zone. And then we've got two major airports, the Gold Coast uh, International Airport and Brisbane International Airport, which sort of is the two boundaries of that sort of airspace. So a lot of traffic. Um, you know, a lot of communications going on, a lot of noise on the radio because you've got multiple different people making frequency calls all the way through it. Um, the SeaWorld service, which was um, the one that was involved in the accident, um, is a great operation. It's been running here for many, 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 many years. It's um, gone from, you know, running a little jet range around to, to flying some of the nicest aircraft frames that they've got, which are the, the 130. Uh, and yeah, it was a terrible accident, really, really nasty thing to happen. 
yeah really horrific. the only blemish on their record either so it was the really the only accident they've ever had um so high density area and you know pilots flying in and out of a zone for something to happen it's you're already in the in the, the danger zone already yeah so. it's just horrible i um one mm. of my biggest fears flying aircraft is um is a midair. Uh, I had a friend in an airplane mm -hmm. that had a midair. He was in a training environment. He was training a student in a uh, Seminole twin engine airplane and uh, an RV vans uh, aircraft came up below and ended up mm -hmm. taking off like the right nacelle and the nose of, of my buddy's plane. Uh, and he limped it down. Uh, they, they kind of crash landed in a field. They both walked away, but crazy traumatic experience. And unfortunately mm -hmm. the other pilot uh, passed away. And then I had a helicopter friend of mine that uh, in Germany had a midair and, and unfortunately lost his life. And so the midair thing really is, mm -hmm. you know, kind of a terrifying, Nasty. you know, idea. And obviously in environments like what you're explaining where there's high density traffic, you know, everything usually works pretty well, but it just takes kind of one mm -hmm. lapse or one mistake uh, to have kind of this catastrophic event being local there. Uh, I don't know if there's been any preliminary reports or anything, but do you kind of know? Like, there's n there's no report yet. It takes between twelve and eighteen months for the ATSB, which is our NTSB down here, to make a decision on on what was the general outcome of it. it the things that um, that are kind of evident on the way that they were operating was that they were using uh, just general radio frequencies. They weren't using any dedicated radio frequencies to actually uh, control traffic in and out of that zone. Um, they were using a, a newer platform. So they were using 125s with the A-STARS uh, and they'd moved into the 130 category. So the aircraft, you know, like a 130 is a lot wider aircraft frame. So it makes visually looking across the frame harder because you're looking around through nose shells and out through the sides of the aircraft. Not as narrow as the, the 125. Um, so it's a different frame. Um, and, you know, it's gone from being COVID days when it was nice and quiet to, to non-COVID days where it starts to get really, really busy again. So, you know, it was two o'clock in the afternoon. What happens at two o'clock in the afternoon for most of us? We want to go back to bed again. It's it's a terrible time of the day, that two to four o'clock where you've got that the lull in the afternoon. So a number of factors. And I'm not saying any of those factors are part of it, but they, those are the ones that stand out to me when I look at it. Yeah, I mean, things stack up and, and unfortunately mm -hmm. accidents do happen um, and it's, mm -hmm. it's tragic. But uh, like you had said before we started recording, uh, truly amazing that it wasn't both helicopters, uh, you know, uh, you know, I saw the aftermath, I saw the pictures and video of the helicopter that was able to land, I think somewhere kind of on the beach area. And I mean, it didn't on look like island. it was a flyable aircraft. <laughs> and so incredible no. for that pilot. Do you know how long they were airborne still? I mean, did he get down to the ground like instantaneously? So here's how lucky they were. There's a sand cave that was directly underneath the accident site that was visible during the, the lower tides. And that was there, obviously. All he did was he, he literally came straight down from the 200 feet, 300 feet, straight down onto that sandbar directly below them. So he didn't fly you know, longer than the time that it took to lower the collective and actually get to the ground. If he had a tide to make it back to the, the actual solid ground, which was probably only two to 300 metres away, I think it would have ended up in the water. Wow. So it was 
one of those lucky things where that sand cave was just in the right place for him to be able to put it back down on the ground straight away. Uh, the aircraft frame with the people who um, obviously had survived the one the, the, the impact that where it lost the blades, that landed on the same sand cave. So they were, as everyone saw, they were meters away from the water. It wasn't like the falling egg, they, they, a sand cave that was just there during a certain time of the day. Well, it's it, yeah, it incredibly lucky. lucky. You know, and, and I mm. know from personal experience of flying tours that if you end up in the water, there's a good chance mm. there's one person getting out and that's the pilot uh, because they really understand the seatbelts. No they understand the jettison on the door. Um, I did have my buddy Ian had a passenger jettison his door at the bottom of the Grand Canyon one time. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that, that, that does happen occasionally, but you know, that's, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's horrific to think that, um, you know, they're that close to water because the outcome probably would have been a lot different if they would have uh, ended up in, in the soup. Oh, for sure. Uh, over land or over water. It was, it was a, you know, a very lucky, um, survival rate from that accident the the fact that seven people walked away from that accident from a mid-air um that's that's incredible very very incredible yeah so, well you know thank you for talking about that i know it's close to home hmm. and i know it's uh, hard to Sorry. you know you, like you said you had friends uh, that were involved so you know um hmm. my my condolences for that and and as an industry you know i think it's always important to talk about the accidents that occur if you're in the industry sure. long enough, you you know people that end up unfortunately um, having accidents. Most of the people end up, um, you know, having an unfavorable outcome. Uh, some of them walk away. Mm -hmm. My podcast a couple of weeks ago with my buddy Jackie. You know, he was in in a in a wire strike. He probably should have died, but he didn't. And so it's always mm -hmm. nice to you know to well, to have someone walk away. But it's uh, I think talking about it. Uh, is there's always something that we can, as an industry, uh, learn from and hopefully become a safer industry to where we're all having the sure. highest, you know, chances of getting back home every day. Yeah, the the um, the pilot that passed away in the accident is, you know, and an instructor, a good friend, and he would hate the idea that people didn't learn from the accident that he was involved in. He would hate the idea that it had some sort of negative impact on aviation or a negative impact on the, um, the aircraft operator or the, the type of flights that they were doing. I, I know him. It's, it's, he has the same feelings as I would. I'd, I'd hate to think that that affected the industry that we're working in at all. Yeah. And definitely would want to learn from the outcome. You know? No, for sure. It's so so they've been made changes. I, I believe they've made changes. They're now using radios to do their departure in and out. So they've got somebody on the ground playing eyes as well. Um, every little bit of safety helps. It's always difficult with an accident like that because I think it's wrong place, wrong time. And I think, you know, looking at the experience and everyone else's, you know, there's very little that would have ever adjusted that outcome. Sure. I think it's, we can do a little bit to try to make that window as small as possible, but it's still a window. There's always going to be a window. Yeah, no, there's absolutely always a window and, mm -hmm. and great pilots, um, make mistakes. Mm -hmm. You know, my buddy Jackie, who was on the show recently, mm -hmm. you know, in his wire strike, you know, uh, just like most wire strikes, he, he knew about the wire, right. He, he knew it was there. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it just takes one little lapse, uh, one little audit oddity of the day. Uh, you might daydream a little bit cause you're doing the same lap over and over and over again. And, uh, you know, unfortunately mm -hmm. in this case, there was that accident and, uh, it, it does seem like that pilot that lost his life 
very well known, uh, very well liked uh, and respected aviator. I remember well uh, seeing the Facebook yeah. comments, you know, on all the different platforms, you know, uh, talking about him, him as an aviator, mm -hmm. his character and everything like that. So certainly a sad loss, but mm -hmm. like you said, hopefully uh, we can learn from that. And uh, as an industry, not just in your micro, you know, your little, your, your area there where you operate, but as an industry as whole, we can always learn from mm. every single accident. Definitely. Mm. We, uh, I talk a lot yeah, about sure. that, you know, a lot of my friends that are non aviation helicopter people, you know, they're, they, it's been asked in the past, like, do you guys like kind of not talk about accidents? Do you turn away and it's like, well, actually, in at least here in the States, uh, you know, the training is very much centered around accidents centered about, mm -hmm. you know, Hey, let's look at what happened in this scenario dissect it a little bit and see what we can learn. And obviously a lot of regulations mm -hmm. and rules and things are, you know, written in blood, as they say, uh, to where, mm -hmm. you know, it's really important that we can uh, dissect an accident and learn from it. You know, recently uh, there was a Chinook accident here in, uh, I believe in Idaho, where, you know, it looks like preliminary report is saying that an iPad had fallen and got wedged in between the pedals that. and uh, vertical mm -hmm. magazine had a fantastic article. Um, and, you know, I look at an article like that as a life saving article, something in which, mm, yeah. you know, could happen in any platform specifically um, with everyone who's flying with an iPad. It's so easy for the case to shake totally. off or anything like that. So who doesn't fly with an iPad? Exactly. I mean, it's just, everybody flies with an iPad and, you know, one of the, the biggest things is this fact that it's never tethered to anything inside the aircraft, that they're usually something that we use like a like a book, but they aren't. They're a, a physical obstruction to everything that you have inside the aircraft. Not only that, but a distraction to the actual main job of the aircraft. So you're using them to, you know, flight plan while en route. It's it's a fantastic platform, don't get me wrong, but I I like mine tethered either to my leg where it's stuck and it's not going anywhere and we have harnesses so it stays on the leg or it's tethered to the aircraft with a clip folder so it actually stays on the aircraft. We do have an issue here with regards to things that are um, like connected like an iPad for private pilots where they aren't allowed to actually have it connected to the aircraft on takeoff or landing. It's got to be put into the aircraft frame. So, you know, the rubber stickers that you stick on the window for like an iPad connection uh, during flight. And I'm not a big fan of that. I'd rather know that it's secured all the way through the whole flight rather than something that you ad hoc add to the aircraft frame afterwards. So yeah. I'm not a big fan yeah, of that. Yeah, that's a but little It is weird. a distraction. Yeah. Mm. In fact, the episode that's mm. going to launch after your episode, we, we come out every Tuesday. Um, Hmm. I, I talk about, uh, I call it a talking head video, just me talking. And it's a, it's about a, an iPad, uh, situation that I had one time that I think almost led me to crashing a helicopter, uh, because of this hmm. iPad. Um, and so, you know, it's, there's the iPad is great. I love the iPad. Uh, I, hmm. I love it for hmm. flying. I love it for work. Uh, but yeah, I think yeah. anytime you're adding a, something like that, you add distraction, uh, you can mm -hmm. obviously can obstruct pedals or collective or anything like that. So definitely, you know, as technology advances, you know, we're going to have to continue to evolve with, you know, how we mitigate the cockpit and how we mitigate the safety within the cockpit. Yes. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. It's a very interesting platform. Mm -hmm. So you, you did the customs border patrol um, mm -hmm. before we kind of wrap it up for today. 
what are you currently doing? What are things that you just love that you're currently doing? And, and, and what is it like to now look back at a career of, of 10,000 hours and still doing it? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm hoping there's still a few hours left in me. The, um, the flying side of things, obviously I'm still actively involved in the training side of things. It's not the nine to five flying school anymore. I tend to fly with like a pilot mentor with private operators or uh, training of, of particular clients rather than doing the full on ones heavily involved with your jet life obviously for the promotion of the cause um, working for monarch is is um, one of their um, promoters as well and that's you know all of the software side of things so luckily my aviation career has kind of evolved now where it's this mushroom of everything that's sort of connected to aviation we've got um, guys here that are uh, purchasers of the new hills helicopter so we're looking at bringing in new technology and there's, there's actually a group i think of about 60 aircraft coming here to australia wow and so that's that next level of I mean, you've seen them all the pretty pictures now they're, they're releasing a machine in december so um, you know, there's, there's this part. And then now I sit on a couple of the working groups with regards to the UAM, AAM stuff. We've just finished per, uh, building a, um, a helipad vertiport here in, in Queensland. We've obviously got Commonwealth Games going in 2032. So there's this progression between now and 2032 with establishing more of a helicopter um, uh, UAM uh, footprint. Here, Australia doesn't have a very good way of integrating helicopters into cities. We still have this one airport sort of idea with a very small uh, footprint with helipads. We don't have building top helipads unless they're actually uh, HEMS pads. So the access to places is usually golf courses and, you know, wineries, not actually city venues where people want to travel from, like as a person hub. Yeah, it's it's still a bit raw, but that's... Uh, it's changing with the, the concept changing where people can get onto a drone with they don't have a pilot's license and they fly from point A to point B uh, remotely. And that part's going to change the industry for us. So I'm heavily involved in, in working on that next 50 years. That's awesome. Aviation. It's cool. I mean, it's, yeah. um, you know, it seems like the work that you're doing, like you said, it's going to just keep progressing the industry forward. States is very similar. There's, mm. There is a lot of helicopter pads on buildings, but most of them are not public. Uh, you know, private hmm. use, whoever owns the building yeah. or the company or whatever. In fact, one of the only private use or excuse me, public use uh, heliports that I'm familiar with is actually in Portland, Oregon, where I trained 6-1 Juliet. Hmm. It's a cool little rooftop pad on top of a six-story parking garage. Um, so that hmm. was kind of fun during training to take students there. And we often did a lot of yeah. charters, you know, taking people to dinner downtown and whatnot. It's one of my favorite things to do yeah. is land on the building. You know, that's you know yeah it is always very cool uh, what are the i remember one of the um the hospital pads is between two larger buildings and you sort of got to do a little left hand turn to get in between them you can't see the pad on direct yeah landing on a building is always good fun doesn't matter which aircraft platform you're in yeah, yeah no i good. agree 100 mm -hmm. well shane thank you so much for taking the time uh and your sunday uh to drop in on the helicopter podcast and and share not just about the lottery with the R44 and your jet life, uh, but also just to talk about your career uh, and some of the other topics that we discussed today. So I really appreciate you making time. I hope you enjoyed the experience. And when I come visit- Definitely enjoyed it. And thank you for having of me. Of course. Mate, you come down and we'll go flying in Australia and see what it's like out Perfect. here. Go chase a few cows. Yeah, I, uh, it's, it's <laughs> definitely, I, I really want to go to Indonesia. Um, and mm -hmm. I figure go, go to Indonesia, do a couple of weeks there, and then you're already and then head to Australia. Probably already way here, might then. as well, right? Yeah. 
Um, That's perfect. Yeah, it'd be super fun. Um, Certainly on my bucket list to get down there. So thank you again uh, for joining. I can't wait to stay in touch with you. Uh, so please continue to stay awesome. in touch and, and I'm really excited, uh, for hopefully me winning the R44, but ultimately excited <laughs> for uh, anyone again, to well, our listeners, get onto your jet life and get under those tickets, yourjetlife.com. Yep. Yourjetlife.com. It's going to be, um, yeah. down below here in, in the, uh, description of the podcast and yeah, go it, drawn in December the 20th and I'll give you a call and say, Hey, <laughs> you, Shane will call you personally. I, ho- I hope you're calling me, but that's it. But, uh, 300,000 tickets. I mean, Hey, it's a, you have a pretty good chance actually considering, you know, different lotteries and things like that. So, um, as far as the sure. podcast guys, thank you so much for continuing to like and support the helicopter podcast. Remember we are now doing video and audio, so you can check us out on your favorite platform, Spotify, Apple, whatever you listen to, make sure that you subscribe so you are notified every Tuesday when we drop new episodes. And we also have a YouTube channel, The Helicopter Podcast. Go ahead and like that as well and subscribe. And again, Shane, thank you so much for joining The Helicopter Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you, Elsa. See ya.